again, perhaps titillating and exciting in terms of new knowledge, but maybe for us a better understanding of our Father in Heaven, because that is the greatest relationship there is, and one that we need to be very, very attentive to, and be sure that we get as correct and as strong and as uh, living as possible, because our Father in Heaven is the center of the universe and the power of the universe. And we cannot perhaps overemphasize this, and I'm taking quite a little time going through, but if we can see from the things Christ says and from the things written in the Word of God that He inspired to be done, then perhaps it will help us improve our relationship because there's always room for that. So let's go to Matthew 26. And I'll pick it up here in verse 39. Christ was going through uh, the greatest temptation that had ever come upon a man and knew that he was about to face persecution and beating and all kinds of abuse. So he went to pray. He said to them in verse 38, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even to death. Wait here and watch with me. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So he had all these human emotions and feelings churning through his mind and body, knowing what he was facing, the greatest trial that any man had ever faced, and he was tempted in all points like as we are. Some people don't believe that statement. How could Christ have been tempted with the things we are? Yes, he was. He had every emotion, every feeling, every need, every desire that any of us have ever had of any kind. Else he could not be our Savior. Do we grasp that? He was a human being when he was here on this earth. And he had every desire, every feeling of the flesh that any of us have ever had. I, I think some people have difficulty with that because they think, well, he was God. So how could God have those feelings? Look, God, the Father, through the Son, created everything. And every human emotion, every human desire, every human feeling, God designed in us on purpose. Do we grasp that? We can watch little birds or insects or animals and things that they do that really are unbelievable. How did that develop? God just designed it in there, and it goes from generation to generation. I saw a bird just recently that brought this concept again to mind. A mother bird trying to protect her nest from a a predator. And she flew along the ground like waving a wing like it was broken. You've seen it probably in your life at times. A deception to get the predator to chase her thinking she's wounded and forget about her eggs or her babies in the nest. How did that develop? God designed that into her little, bitty, tiny brain. 
so that it was just an automatic reaction. And there are so many millions of those things that could be brought up as examples of how God has so intricately designed each and every living form on this earth to have different reactions, different instincts. How incredible that is. And he's done the same thing with us, only with even greater care. Now, those animals and birds and insects work with instinct, but he gave within us a mind that can reason and think and can decide to go this way or that way. The lower forms of life, if you will, are simply programmed to do things a certain way with very little opportunity for change from that. Even some of of the animals that can figure out how to get in a bottle and get something out or whatever are only reacting from the instincts that God put within them, and they have a very limited reasoning ability. We have a far greater opportunity to get ourselves in trouble because we can think and we can reason and use logic and think up things to do or say or be that are contrary to what God would have. But he designed that within us. So he knows very intimately everything about any human being. And he sent his son here not only to have helped design that, prepare it and create it, but to come down here and then actually live it so that he would have first-hand experience with what we have to go through. Now, that is an incredible sacrifice because when he came here as a human being, Christ, to one degree or another, jeopardized his eternal standing in the kingdom of God Because had he given in and sinned once, had pride, vanity, or ego once, he would have died for his own sin. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Now that has been quoted over and over again and almost to the point it's lost its meaning among Protestants. But we need to focus and truly grasp what manner of love it was that he would jeopardize that to come here for us and go through every emotion, every feeling that we have ever felt, anything we have ever wanted to say or do, he had the same desire and feeling about. He just never gave in, and that's the difference. We do continually and daily give in to our vanity, our pride, our ego, our self-centeredness, and, you know, on and on and out goes the works of the flesh. And we have a constant struggle. But he was not going to go and represent before our Father, the final judge, without first coming here and going through For 33 and a half years, what we go through. Do we grasp? No, we don't. But let's work on grasping how much love 
our Father in Heaven has for us. He only had one son. And he was willing to give him up and let him die for our sins. That's how much he loves each and every one of us. So if we think we have love on this earth, we do, but we don't have that kind. We have to work at, on a daily basis, coming to have that kind of depth of feeling and love for each other that the Father had for us. Anyway, getting back to verse 39, the utter commitment that Christ had, he, he, was, he was wrestling with his feelings here. That's kind of what set me off on this thing about how he was tempted in all points like as we are. He was facing death. He was facing maiming, worse than any man had ever been. And he'd read the Psalms. He knew that, what was coming. So he had this in, incredible battle going on. He didn't just automatically submit to the will of the Father. He had to deal with his fear, his uh, dread. He had to deal with understanding that he had not done anything wrong and he was about to face this for somebody else, not for his own guilt or conscience sake. So he had all these feelings running through his head and his heart and his, and his stomach was all upset and his bowels upset. Going through horrible emotions. So he talked to his father about it. If it be possible, let me not have to face this. But your will be done. When we face trials, troubles, difficulties, illnesses, all kinds of difficulties we face. We have to totally submit to God and say, I know this trial, this trouble, this temptation, this chastening, this whatever it might be that's besetting us is something I have to go through. I would not like to. I'd like you to take it away. I'd like you to bless me instead of whatever is happening to me at the moment. But... Your judgment reigns supreme, I submit. Now, there's the attitude we have to have. That's what Christ our Savior had. Total surrender to God. <clears throat> and that's what he's looking for. You know, we, we surrender in part, don't we? We'll surrender this much of me. We'll surrender that much of me. We'll serve and give to others, because remember what we said last week, Whatever we do to each other, we're judged by because that's the way we'd, we would have treated Christ himself and the way that we do. Because his life is so linked with the human beings that he is here high priest of, that it is the same feeling and emotion in his mind and heart that he feels when we treat each other like we do. Do we grasp that? He takes it personal. If we mistreat one another, he takes it personal as if we were doing it directly to him. If we talk behind one another's back, he takes it personal if we were talking behind his back. 
He has that depth of feeling about our relationships one with the other, and that's why he can say, your judgment is based on how you treat each other, because if you do, that's the way you treat me. Because those are my brethren, those are my sisters, and I want them treated the way I would treat them. I don't think we think of it that graphically most of the time. We try to separate our relationship with God from our relationship with people. And it cannot be done, he said so, in his own words. So let's not do that anymore. Let's surrender totally and completely to what he said. That our judgment will be based strictly upon the way we treat each other. A very, very scary proposition. But that is the depth of feeling that he has for each and every one of us. <clears throat> and it is something that we should be daily conscious of. Not something we think about every six months or when it comes up here. You know, we, we've been instructed and we've read so many times in the Bible to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. So we, more I think than the world around us, have that thought in mind. Maybe we let it slip at times, but everything we let go through our mind should be of God. And our thoughts should not stray to things where they should not go. But we let that slip and slide a lot of times and may not be always consciously aware of it, but I, I think that the church of God, by and large, is more conscious of that than the rest of the world is. But let us also be deeply conscious about our relationships with one another in relationship to His with us. So His was total surrender to the Father. Whatever your will is. And He came to the disciples and they were asleep. Couldn't you, couldn't you even watch... I'm going through the greatest agony a person could possibly go through, and you'll sleep through it. How much concern did Peter have for Christ at that moment? They'd lived together for three and a half years, essentially, traveling together, being together day and night. And yet, here he came into this situation the most tense moment that has ever been on earth. And the disciples could contentedly sleep through that. Oh, how weak we are. He said, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. We sit here today and you hear these things being read, commented on from God's word. And the Spirit indeed is willing, and you, said, you say, yes, we need to do that. I need to do that. And the Spirit is willing. But you will find out, probably before this service is over as your mind wanders, or sometime afterward, or certainly by tomorrow, that the flesh is weak. And you will make some comment or have some thought that really should not be made. I did it just yesterday, and the day before, and the day before, and the day before. I don't remember them, but I did. 
I may have been aware of them at the moment. I may not have been. I may have thought of it later and said, oh, I shouldn't have thought that or I shouldn't have said that. But it just happens. Doesn't it? So, we need to pray continually, realizing the Spirit of God in us would have us be this way, but our flesh is indeed weak. Well, let's understand what kind of relationship and the depth of it that we need to have, not with just the Father and the Son, but with one another. And we do have a lot of work to do in that neighborhood, that is for sure. Now let's go to the book of Mark. <clears throat> Mark 8. And here let's pick it up in verse 34. And when he had called the people to, unto him with his disciples also, he said to them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross or his stake and follow me. So, we are committing ourselves, if we've decided to go God's way, to denying self. And that's what Christ was doing in the passage we just read. He was, he was uh, denying every feeling, every emotion that was racking his soul and his body at that moment. And denying himself to feel sorry for himself, of feeling selfish, of giving up, of being discouraged, of being angry at us because of our sins that he had to suffer for. All those emotions going through his heart and mind. And he denied himself. We, we like to coddle ourselves. We like to allow certain things in our minds and hearts. We'll go a certain distance with God, but, you know, I'm not quite ready to give this up or that up. We have a struggle there. Some things you can give up fairly easily. Some people, when they came in the church, just walked away from cigarettes and never went back. Cold turkey happened that way. Others struggled with that one. Others had it easier with something else that somebody else struggled with, whatever it might have been. For most of us, unclean meats wasn't that big a deal. They're not quite as addictive. I mean, instead of pig, you can eat cow. So it's not that big a deal to change that one. I, at least I've never heard of anybody that kept saying, oh, i just got to have one more pork chop. Well, that, that one doesn't bother most people. Maybe to some degree if they really like shrimp or something. But it isn't an addictive thing in the same way. And some things we just have difficulty doing. So if you're going to follow him, he says, deny yourself and come and follow me. <clears throat> For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. So we have to lose our life in service to God and one another. So that we're not thinking of me and my all the time, but we are losing self and giving. That's why he says, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. 
just be so busy helping, giving, serving, loving, a hand of kindness, or whatever, to the point that we forget about self. Now, that doesn't sound like fun, does it? And yet, on the other hand, do not most of our bad emotions and our feelings and our difficulties come from putting self first? I want to feel sorry for myself. I want to have a bad attitude. I want to have one about you because of what you did to me. So, most of our trouble centers in self. Most of our trouble is brought upon by self. Our desires, our feelings, our wants, our needs, and then feeling sorry that we don't have everything we want. So, if you're serving and giving to others and thinking of them, then self kind of gets lost in there. And then we don't have time to sit around and pity our poor selves or be in bad attitudes toward others. How do you, how do you have a bad attitude toward someone you're helping? I guess you can, but it tends to go away. It's easy to withdraw from someone and have a bad attitude toward them. No, it's better to serve, give, help, treat those with kindness and love that despitefully use you and persecute you. Isn't that what he says? If we're to be like the Father and like the Son, then we have to think seriously about these attitudes, these approaches to life. If you're going to save your life eternally, then you give it up. I don't mean you have to die necessarily, but as Paul said, I die daily. I crucify the flesh, the self. I put me away and serve others. And my life becomes a living sacrifice, Romans 12, verse 1. We, you know, to shoot yourself is not of service to anyone. It doesn't help anyone. To be alive and use your life to serve others then is a living sacrifice. <clears throat> For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? We can labor to be rich. We can labor to do this, whatever our physical goals might be. And if we achieve them, what good has it accomplished? As I've said before, most people spend their health getting wealth. And then they spend their wealth trying to get their health back. Because they ruin the health seeking wealth. So even on a physical level it works. But what about your spiritual life? If you're only laboring for that which goes away when you die, what good have you done? <clears throat> I know we're not, for the most part, laboring to become wealthy. We're just struggling to survive. <laughs> but the principle is always there. Of what, what is my effort going into? And am I putting the, F, the same effort or more into my spiritual life as I am into the physical? And somehow, some way, we have to balance that. Things are going badly in our country, as the Bible prophesied. And we make wages to put in a pocket with holes. 
Money doesn't go very far. So it's a struggle just to put food on the table and pay the power bill, isn't it? But given those circumstances, we still have to be sure that we are putting the spiritual first and devoting time and energy to God in service of one another, which is the service of God. Whosoever, therefore, shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. He says, it's a given. I understand what the culture, the society around you is and what it's all about. He grasps that. He lived in one. And we live in the dying vestiges of the last gasp of man upon this earth where we have gone totally into situation ethics and selfishness. He understands that. So, you say, hey, wait a minute. You, don't, you just don't know what's going on down here. Yes, he does. He realizes what is around us. But let's not be ashamed of him and his way, even in the face of what we look at daily. Of him also shall the Son of Man <clears throat> be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Sometimes we can be intimidated by the world. We might give in to them or to peer pressure a little bit because we don't want them to think strangely of us. We don't want them to feel put off, so we react. And we have to be careful. You know, somebody in town might or at work might tell a dirty joke. Well, it's so easy to go along with it, to laugh at it, and it seems so self-righteous to turn the cold shoulder to it and not be like them, or take it another step further to tell one of like kind, because you know one that you heard a long time ago maybe, that uh, would make them laugh too. So there's a certain peer pressure there in many, many ways, whatever they might be, to be like the world around us. And it can, even to us, appear self-righteous not to act like and think like they think. But God has called us to think differently and not to go along with them. That will cause them not to like us or to think we're weird. So don't do it in self-righteousness, you know, and I'm, I'm certainly better than you. I wouldn't say anything like that. We don't want to come across that way, but we can change the subject or we can ignore it. There are ways without going the way they go. Because really, aren't we being ashamed of Christ and of our Father in heaven when we react to those things in a wrong way? We're putting, pleasing some human being on this earth ahead of pleasing God with our thoughts and our comments. That's what it really boils down to. So he said, if you're ashamed to stand up for my way, then I'm going to be ashamed to stand up for you. It's just that simple. That complicated, and yet that simple. Let's see, from there, let's go to chapter 12. 
and here I want about verse 30. Mark 12. Well, let's pick it up in verse 29. And Emmanuel answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Eternal our God is one Lord. The first of all the commandments, well, it's a, it's a paraphrase of the first commandment, to put God ahead of everything. And you shall love the Eternal your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. So he fleshes out the first commandment quite a bit here. Not to put anything ahead of God. <clears throat> That's with every emotion, every feeling, everything has to be channeled toward loving God. Do we have that kind of commitment? Not generally. We have to work on that. He said, I'll turn my face from you until you turn to me with your whole heart, and then I will turn it to you and bless you. So, we are a work in progress in keeping the first commandment. There are no commandment keepers truly on earth. There are those who recognize that they are important and are working at keeping them and keeping them partially, but there's no one who is keeping them completely. We all have work to do. <clears throat> we don't love God with every emotion and put Him or put ourselves in total surrender to Him. The second is like is like, is like that, namely this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is none other commandment greater than these two. They summarize the ten, they boil it down to two principles. Love God with every fiber of your being and love your neighbor as much as you do yourself. We have trouble with the first and we rarely reach the second. It is a work in progress. And the scribe said to him, Well, Master, you have said the truth, for there is one God, and there is none other but He. And to love Him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love his neighbor as himself is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. The man could quote that, and he could agree with that. And when Emmanuel saw that he answered discreetly, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. If you have that understanding, you're getting close to grasping what it takes to be part of the kingdom of God. You know, this, this whole book, there's lots of pages here. This whole thing is nothing but those two principles. That's all it is. It just keeps explaining it and expounding it and coming at it from different directions, different times, historically, from Moses, through the prophets, through the kings, David, through Christ's tenure on this earth. This book was written over a period of time. And all ages faced similar problems. Human nature has always been the same. 
So it didn't matter what period of time in the history of man that anyone lived, everyone faced the exact same circumstances. Learning to get along with deity and humanity and doing it according to what this man quoted and understood. So God has given us a great panoply of history to take from and understand. Well, you know, Moses faced this, David faced that, Daniel faced this. So he gives us a basis. You know, that puts us in a really good position. You and I do not have to make every mistake that all the people of the Bible made. You know, they didn't, for the most part, have this word. They didn't have all this history and example to know about. But God so lovingly wrote it all down, and some of those people would be very embarrassed to know that the mistakes they made were written in this book for everybody who wanted to, to read it. How would you feel if you knew, after you died, someone would write every lousy thing you ever thought or did? <laughs> That's not a pleasant thought. Well, they didn't write everything, but some of their major sins are recorded in here. For us, upon whom the ends of the world have come. So we're supposed to learn from this, so we don't have to go through and do it all over again. And maybe some of the things written about us when the book of Acts is completed would not be as bad as some of the things you read about some of these poor people who are in this book. I know it's too late for most of us, isn't it? We're just now struggling to do what's right after having done a lot of wrong things, perhaps. Or not done wrong things, but been so self-righteous because we weren't like those sinners. We can grow up in the church like that, too. <clears throat> now let's go to Luke 15. On here, let's start in verse 11. <clears throat> Luke 15, verse 11. Here's a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that fall to me. And he divided them to his living. And of course, we understand this in spiritual terms, not just in physical. Realizing that we may want our reward now. We want whatever we can have in this life. Uh, and that analogy is certainly put forth in terms of our Father in heaven and us on this earth, because it's an analogy written about humans to give a spiritual understanding. <clears throat> so, we can either seek our reward in this life, or we can seek reward in the life to come, deny ourselves and follow Him as we've already talked about. It's easy to read this and say, well, it, that son shouldn't do that. But isn't it so easy for us to seek our reward now? To enjoy what we want to enjoy now rather than setting those things aside? <clears throat> so he said, I want my reward now. And the father said, all right, 
He divided them his living. Now, doesn't God give us free moral agency? He says, do this. You can do that if you want to. Why will you die? You can do it if you want, but it's going to be bad in the end. You may not get what you wanted ultimately if you put yourself first. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country. But I have my reward. I have my inheritance early enough that I'm still young enough I can go and enjoy it instead of getting it when my dad dies and who knows if he ever will. Oh boy, looks like he's going to live forever. I, I want to enjoy life now. So he took his wealth, went into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. It goes through your hands so fast. I guess people that win a lottery are kind of in the same boat in a way. They win millions and millions of dollars, and two or three or four or five years later, they're broke and miserable because they didn't know how to handle it, didn't know how to use it, wasted it. Others took it away from them, scams, you name it. And not having the experience and the knowledge of how to handle it, they lost it. This fellow's in the same boat. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. He began to realize, hey, that wasn't really the way to live at all, and now I'm in trouble. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Now, when you've been used to wearing fancy duds and partying and doing anything you want to do, it's quite a come down to be wearing some ragged old clothes of wherever you can get them because you pawned your fancy duds to have a few last meals and feeding pigs. Feeding pigs is not a pleasant thing. I did it very early in life, and they, they just simply stink. It is not a pleasant atmosphere to be around pigs. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave to him. Not only was he feeding the pigs, he was eating with the pigs. The slop, the stuff that no one would eat but pigs would. If you follow chickens around or pigs around, you do not necessarily want to have that diet. And we came to himself... He said, how many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I'm starving to death eating with the pigs. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. He began the process of repentance from having lived that way, just as we begin to repent of our way of living and doing and begin to turn to God. And am no more worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. So he had this attitude, this mindset. I'm going to go back home. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Now, is that the way all fathers would react to a son who had 
been this decadent, this sinful, a wretch. Human beings tend to be somewhat vindictive. They would tend to say, I told you so. Didn't I tell you what would happen if you went out there? I told you so doesn't work too well. It doesn't build human relationships correctly. Pity, or compassion, rather, and love will help. This fellow had been beat down. He realized by then that he had done wrong. He was coming hat in hand asking for forgiveness. And God did not say, I told you so. Just thinking about that, I'm thankful I have a Father in Heaven like that. Because there have been so many times in my life that I've had to approach God and say, Father, I'm sorry for what I've thought, for what I've done. Please have mercy on me, a sinner. And I'm glad I have a father like this one who doesn't say, yeah, Daryl, sure, sure. I told you so. You knew that from the time you were eight, nine years old. Why'd you go do it, dummy? Boy, what I almost said about me. But God doesn't react that way. He is love clear through. If he sees a change in attitude, that's all he cares about. Our sins can be washed away in the blood of our Savior, who came and lived and died without sin for you and for me. This father had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. He saw the attitude. He saw the change in approach. And he couldn't help it. He just melted and grabbed his son and hugged him and loved him. And he didn't say a word, apparently, about what the son had done. A lot of fathers would. Yeah, you come back. You wasted your inheritance. I gave you everything you could possibly want or need. You wasted it. Now you want to come back and have me support you? You want to work for me? A lot of fathers and sons don't get along too well under these circumstances. I'm no more worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Some of the very things that the guy had wasted, the father gave back to him. Not in abundance. He didn't give the other son's inheritance to him, we'll see. But he, seeing the change in attitude, fell on him with love. Just as we, with our children, see rebellion, stiff-necked, stubborn, selfish pride, and we chasten them, we work with them until the attitude changes. And then we love them and kiss them and hug them because we do love them, but we didn't like the attitude they had. Now, this father was probably 
experienced enough that he had a pretty good idea of what would happen when he sent this young man off with half his wealth. And he allowed it. He didn't obsess over it. He said, son, that's the way you want to go? It's your business. Here. God does the same with us. Here's the way you really ought to live that will produce happiness and peace and joy and eternal life. But if you're going to go that way, it's your business. And then he sits back and watches you and hopes at some point you change your attitude and turn to him and come back and say, Father, I'm sorry, I sinned, have mercy on me. And when he sees that attitude... He can't help himself. He loves us so much that he can't say anything but, Welcome home, son. Let's have the finest robes. Let's have rings. Let's have shoes. Bring the fatted calf. Kill it. Let us eat and be merry. He didn't even sit down and give him a strong talking to about what he had done. He just said, Bring the fatted calf. We're going to party. Wouldn't that be beyond our comprehension to someday have our Father in heaven return to this earth with His Son and we rise to meet Him in the air and He doesn't even mention anything we ever did wrong on this earth. He says if we repent and turn to Him and our sin is washed away, it will never again be mentioned to us. That is our Father in heaven. He's not going to say, well, I'm going to let you in. But boy, I'll tell you what, when you did that, I almost turned it the other way. He's not going to make us feel guilty for being there. He's going to be so happy that we changed and overcame. And it is his good pleasure to give us the kingdom. (coughs) We will have a marriage and a wedding festival like the world has never known before the Father's throne in heaven when we rise to meet Him in the air and go back for that marriage and honeymoon pictured by a day of atonement when we become at one with the Father and Son. He'll kill the fatted calf and our sins will not be mentioned. You know, there's going to be 144,000 there and boy, there's going to be people from all walks of life, all kinds of backgrounds, some worse than others, they'll never be compared. He even tells us it's not wise to compare ourselves among ourselves. The disciples did it. Well, now, I wonder which one of us is the greatest. Let's have an opinion poll and you all got to vote for me. We won't be there. We won't have that attitude. There will be no jockeying for position. We'll all be so happy to have had David's attitude of I'd rather be a doorkeeper in your kingdom than to have everything on this earth. Just thankful to be there and God so happy to have us there. Nothing we ever did will be mentioned to us. Wow. That's the kind of father we have. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. 
And they began to be merry. They picked up on the father's attitude and the servants, the brother, well, we haven't seen him yet, (laughs) but those who were around in the household picked up on father's attitude and began to be merry. Don't we know that the angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner brought to repentance? So if we go to our father and we repent and change our attitude, the angels in heaven, all those around God, begin to rejoice and make merry and have a party. Can't believe that one repented, let's party. How often do the angels get to party? Looking down at human beings. Probably not a whole lot. But I hope that the number of times they get to party will begin to open up. Now what about other human beings? Now his elder son, verse 25, was in the field. He was out working, sweating. And he came and drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and said, What does this mean? What is going on? We didn't have this yesterday. Now I'm coming out of the field, and I hear party music. And he called one of the servants, and, and, and he said to him, Your brother is come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has received him safe and sound. So the servant was probably real happy. He'd picked up the party atmosphere and said, Hey, your brother's back. We're having a party. Come on in. Not on your life. He was angry, and he would not go in. Therefore his father came out and entreated him, pleaded with him, begged him, Hey, don't have that attitude. And he answering said to his father, These many years do I serve you, neither transcribe rest I at any time your commandment. A little self-righteous about his life, right? A little resentful. This, uh, that guy sinned. I've been here working hard. I've been doing everything I'm supposed to do. Why are you letting that sinner in? And you never gave me a kid. We never had a party. All I do is work my tail off around here. Who do you think you are not giving me a party? You do that wastrel has been out doing what he's been doing that I might make merry with my friends. When did you last throw me a party, Dad? But as soon as this your son was come, which has devoured your living with harlots, you have killed for him the fatted calf. Well, that's a natural, normal reaction, isn't it? That's a reaction most of us would have. If our brother or our sister had taken half of everything dad and mom had and gone out and wasted it on harlots and drink and partying, and they came back and our parents just received them with open arms, wouldn't we be a little bit ticked off? This is just normal living. He said to him, Son, you are ever with me, and all that I have left is yours. It was fitting that we should make merry and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. Don't look down on your brother. Yes, he's been a sinner. And you've been a good boy. You're the, you're the good sheep. That was the bad sheep. Don't be self-righteous. 
Don't think you're better than Him because you've been here doing what you're supposed to be doing. You're not better than Him. You've just been doing what you're supposed to do. And the reward that is ahead is yours. But be thankful that this one, whom you're looking down on, is back. Now that's the attitude God wants to have, or us to have, with our brothers and sisters right here. We're not to look down upon one another. We're not to compare ourselves among ourselves as to who has the worst sin or the most sins or anything of the kind. But we should be so happy when we see change in anyone. So thankful to our Father in heaven. And they should with us when they see that we're trying to do what's right. doesn't matter where we've been in life. It doesn't matter where anyone else has been in life. We all come under the blood of our Savior. And, and uh, eternal life is offered to anyone who will repent and turn and serve God with their whole heart, mind, body, soul, and being. So why should we judge among ourselves who somebody is or what they are we haven't walked a mile in their moccasins. We don't know what they've been through. We don't know what pressures they've had in their life as they grew up. We don't know what they had to overcome, what they had to face. We don't know where they started. All we see is what we think we see. All right, let's go to chapter 22 of Luke. And pick it up in verse 24. Well, we've already touched on this, but good to review it in perhaps this context. <clears throat> there was also a strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest. This was a, seemed, seemed like to kind of go through their lives. They were always pushing and pulling and trying to determine who was the best, who was the greatest, who was the most righteous, uh, comparing themselves among themselves. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But you shall not be so. He that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. And he that is chief, as he that does serve. They, all, they were all familiar with the concept of servants and those who were mighty, who were kings, who were supposedly important. And he said, really, the ones that are important are the ones who are doing the serving. For whether is greater, he that sits at meat or he that serves, is not he that sits at meat, but I am among you as he that serves. Yeah, in some ways... Those who are in charge have a greater responsibility and maybe in one sense are greater in terms of responsibility, but not in terms of value as a human. He said, I didn't come here to be like the Gentile leaders. I came here to serve, to give, to help. We got that upside down a lot in the church over the years. 
power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, as the old saying goes. And the ministry lorded it over people in many ways and tried to tell them how to live their lives. I mean, directly. You do this, you do that, you do this. And put themselves above the people. That's not the way it's supposed to be. He said, I'm here to just serve. I'm here to give. I'm to be in the position of one who is a servant. Yet are they which have continued with me. Yet, wait a minute. You are they which have continued with me in my temptations. And I appoint to you a kingdom as my Father has appointed to me. He said, you've been here serving and giving. And I'm going to remember that. You've continued with me in my troubles, my temptations, which he had had. They had not left when he had been persecuted, when he had been put down, when they had tried to kill him, the Pharisees and different ones. These disciples had stuck with him. And he said, you're going to be rewarded for that. Now, he lived the life that the Father would want him to live completely all the way through. And it suffered a great deal for it. And we have to live that same life, and it is guaranteed, it is told to us, that if you live like I lived, you will suffer persecutions. People will hate you. But we don't like that, do we? We don't want to be disliked. We don't want to be hated of men. We want to be liked. That's within us. So sometimes we will compromise for the favor of mankind rather than doing what God would have us do. And it doesn't matter what they think. If we do not receive a certain amount of persecution from the world around us, it's because we are not yet different enough from them. Follow? If we are very different than the world around us, they won't like it that we won't go to the same riot, as one writer put it. Was it Peter or James? I forget. That they do. We don't think the same, don't act the same. We, we can't rub shoulders with them without friction because we are different. If you get along too much with this world, you're not enough like God. Now, that doesn't mean we can't work at having a good relationship with people as we run across them in daily life and service jobs or wherever we run across them or even have to work with them shoulder to shoulder. We can try to get along. But in trying to get along, just be sure you don't compromise God's way. That will ultimately, one way or another, bring friction. Because they don't like it that you do it God's way. Well, why won't you come have a beer with us and tell dirty jokes? Why won't you do this with us? Well, I just can't live that way. I, I can't be that way. Sorry. They won't like it. Guaranteed. And I appoint to you a kingdom as my Father has appointed to me. I said, you haven't been perfect. 
you've stayed with me, you've stuck through this, I'm going to put you in my kingdom just as my Father has me. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. That was directly their job, but we're all included here if we're in the first resurrection. And the Eternal said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. Satan is after you, Peter. He wants you. He wants to destroy you. But I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. And when you are converted, strengthen your brothers. He told Peter, said, You've continued with me, but the devil's after you. And you better do things right. And I'll pray for you that you'll make it. And Peter did. He wound up being crucified upside down, according to historical records. Went through the same fate Christ did. But he's going to be in the kingdom of God. And look at what he did. He goes on to tell this story about how he denied Christ three times that very night. But look what he did when the Holy Spirit came in Acts. Look what he wrote in First and Second Peter. Powerful, powerful spiritual meat and strength came from Peter. Satan did not sift him as wheat. Christ prayed for him, and he made it. And so can we. And we need to be strengthening one another. Chapter uh, 23, verse 34. Then said Emmanuel, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots, sold his clothes off, made an absolute mess in torturing his body. And he said, Father, forgive them. He was about to be done to worse than any other human being had ever had things done to him. And his attitude, though, was forgive them. They don't really grasp what it is that they're doing. Ah, that we could have that kind of forgiveness. But that's the kind that the Father and the Son have. His mercy endures forever. It is unending. It is impossible to go beyond the mercy of God. It doesn't matter what we've been or what we've done. It isn't so bad that God's mercy does not extend there. That's the kind of loving Father we have. Where is the end of your patience? Where do you fly off the handle? Where do you give up on someone? When do you give up someone? God never gives us up. He said He will never, ever depart from us. The only problem is us departing from Him. His mercy endures forever. Our obedience does not. So we have to work at it to come to have the kind of attitude He has with each other. What did Christ say? Forgive 70 times 7 in one day? 
<coughs> nobody's going to sin against you, one individual, 490 times in one day. It's not an actual number to count anyway. You know, you could push it. You could jab somebody in the eye and ask for forgiveness. And then poke them again. And, you know, keep your little calculator going. And expect them to forgive you each time you jab them. No, he's just saying, no matter what anybody does, be willing to forgive that day. Don't let it go till sundown. Don't keep your anger till sundown even. Get over it that day. Now that's a tall order because as human beings we like to nurse that a while. We like to hold a grudge. We like to be mad longer than that. In fact, we even joke sometimes, I want to sin against you early today so I'll have all day to enjoy it till sundown. He is willing to forgive us instantly the minute he sees or the second he sees a change in attitude. We are to be willing to do that with each other. Otherwise, we are not treating each other as he would treat us, and we are bringing judgment and condemnation upon ourselves. Remember, he who shows mercy will have mercy. He who forgives will be forgiven, but he who does not forgive will not be forgiven. It's, again, that simple. It's that simple. The attitude we have toward each other is the exact same attitude we're going to get from God. Scary as that sounds. It's just... I mean, you can't argue. You can't equivocate that. It isn't a poor translation. It isn't an awkward wording of any kind. It isn't a parable... It's just a direct statement from God that that's the way our judgment will be. Do we hold attitudes that we've had against someone here or someone somewhere else for a day or a week or a decade or two or three decades? Do we still let it affect our relationship with them? Or have we put it aside and treated them as we would think we would treat Christ? He says if you bear a grudge against another human being, that you will be judged as a grudge keeper. An unforgiving one. One who will not be forgiven. Have I said anything new today? No. I've underlined a few things, emphasized a few things about the relationship between God and man. This isn't anything new or exciting in that sense, but it's something we all have trouble living up to. And it's affecting our judgment. I don't mean our judgment of each other. In that sense, it's affecting our eternal judgment. Because that's how he will judge us. Hard to keep that in mind day to day, isn't it? I mean, somebody can read it to you and remind you, and say, oh yeah, that's right, I better be careful. 
But then it's easy tomorrow to go out and forget it when somebody does something. Oh, my. How did they say that? How did they do that? To me. And then we hear something. Well, someone said such and such. Who said that? Who said that? I want to know. I want to be mad at them. I don't know who to be mad at. Tell me. That's the way we react. We don't say, well, they were probably right. Sure glad they're perceptive. They got the right guy. Might have got their facts a little wrong, but they got the right guy. You know, we will get our facts wrong, won't we? Somebody accuses me of something. Hey, you might not have got that right. You want me to tell you something else? Maybe I won't do that, but I could. You got the right guy. Why do we get upset? It tweaks our vanity, our pride, and our ego, and our self. Is why we get upset. Nearly all animosity, all contention, all argument, nearly all comes from pride. I and me and my feelings. And I don't want them hurt. It's pride is what it is. You know, I see people sometimes trying to act humble. They aren't really humble, but they know they should be, so they act that way. But their pride shows through anyhow by their reactions. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to be humble because we have difficulty with it. We should. But some of the most supposedly humble people I've ever met have been some of the proudest people, in essence, that walk the face of the earth. I work with someone, not in the church sometimes, that tries to put on a humble facade and yet has a very, very high opinion of self and what self believes and does. The individual probably thinks they're humble. No, it's just an act. It isn't the way they really are. It's the way they act. We have to be careful of that. Because it's really easy for us to put on an act when our pride is being hurt. Forgive them. They don't know really what they're doing. He gave them the benefit of the doubt. Well, there really was no doubt. (laughs) Well, he gave them the benefit anyway. Forgive them. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what they accuse me of. It doesn't matter what they think of the way I am. It doesn't matter if they, what they think of what I believe. Just forgive them. They don't grasp. They don't get it. If we could all have that attitude daily with each other, we would not have many problems, would we? It's when we get in the way that we have problems. He did not allow himself to get in the way. And he and his father thought just alike. They are so willing to forgive. So we need to ask. And then they derided him and persecuted him and said all kinds of things and mocked him as the king of the Jews. You you know the story. 
And he never said a word. Never opened his mouth. All the accusations. Can you imagine how much our pride and vanity and self-centeredness would well up inside us if people started accusing us of things that were untrue? We get upset and our pride is hurt and our vanity when people say things about us that are true. And when they say things about us that aren't true, oh boy, do we have righteous anger and indignation. He didn't have it either way. And none of the accusations were right, and yet he never said a word. He never defended himself. He never said, wait a minute. He just took it and did not defend himself. Where'd you get that? Who said that? Who's been talking about me? We're all offended. He was not. That is true humility. Was it a fight for him to have that kind of genuine attitude? Yes, it was. It went against everything in his human mind and emotions and feelings. Human nature cries out to be vindicated, to be exonerated, to be perfect, to be well thought of. Oh, it's in us to be that way. And we get so irate when anyone punctures our little balloon of vanity and self-pride. Now, we know better, don't we? We know what we are inside. We know what our faults, what our feelings, what our emotions are that are wrong, don't we? Well, except when we lie to ourselves and deceive ourselves. But generally, we kind of get the idea. But we sure don't want anybody else to know or to see or to say. That's, we don't want exposed. That's just the way we are. And he was utterly exposed. Probably didn't have a stitch of clothes and he hardly had any skin left. And he'd been called and accused of every despicable thing there is, was, or could be. And he said, forgive them, Father. And he is our example. He is our role model. He is the one we're supposed to be like. And not defend the self, but to forgive and have mercy. So that we might be forgiven and have mercy.